1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical, and this is part three of the tax efficiency series, and we'll continue on the theme of tax savings and some strategies you can employ. In part one, we focused on salary packaging and maximizing superannuation. In part two, we focused on dividends versus capital gains, trust structures, charitable donations, and work-related deductions. In part three in this episode, we'll focus on super spousal contributions, investment bonds, and property deductions. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, feel free to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The first one is to be educated about personal finance. Improving financial literacy is really important. And that leads to the second aim, which is to be empowered. This means that you can take your financial education and literacy and knowledge back to your credentialed advisor and speak at a level that both of you can understand it. And step three, or the third aim, is to be entertained. Now, in this episode, we want to consider some of the other strategies to employ when it comes to tax efficiency, and particularly when it comes to investments. So the first topic we want to really highlight is investment bonds, they're often called tax-effective investments. Now, this is not the same as investing in bonds. That's completely separate. That's a totally different investment option. And it's often a point of confusion. Investment bonds are set to be tax efficient if your tax rate is above 30%. Now we'll get to that a bit later as to why that's important. Now, the other important misconception that everyone needs to understand is investment bonds are not tax-free. This is a common misconception, and I'll address that as well. Now I've done an earlier episode in my previous slide, which is a much more detailed breakdown. If you're interested, it's on the list of episodes um, on Devraga Personal Finance. I think it's episode 87 from memory, uh, but go back and listen to it if you're interested in a really detailed breakdown of investment bonds. But we're going to cover some of the basics in this episode. So, what is an investment bond? Well, basically, they're like any other investment, and it's a structure inv- investment. And when they have earnings within that investment bond, the tax paid on those earnings caps out at the corporate tax rate of 30%. Now, this means supposing your marginal tax rate is 45% and you invest in the share market and earn dividends, which is not an investment bond, well, those dividends, even if fully franked, get added to your assessable income. And I did discuss about this in the previous episode. You do get a 30% rebate on those dividends, but the difference of 15%, if you're on a 45% tax bracket, is still payable by you. But if your marginal tax rate is 45% and you have an investment bond, the earnings within that investment bond are only taxed at a max rate of 30%, which is a corporate tax rate. That is the company tax rate in Australia. So effectively, this is deemed what's called a tax advantaged account, not a tax-free account. Now, if your marginal tax rate is less than 30%, then it may not make much sense to invest in investment bonds, although there are a couple of ways that you can probably wing it, and I will talk about them very briefly in this episode. Now, who is the sort of person that might want to invest in investment bonds? It's usually for people that are looking for long-term growth and earnings. And when they say long-term, at least 10 years. So perhaps you're looking to, say, for a home with a long-term view, Kids' expenses, particularly with education, maybe you want to put them in private schools, etc. Uh, or you want to pass on the wealth to loved ones or those looking to be a bit more tax effective. So these are the sorts of people that may want to consider investment bonds to try and minimize their taxes. Now, there are some rules associated with investment bonds. So what are the rules? You need to know the rules. Now, the minimum investment time frame is at least 10 years. Uh, and in that 10 years, as the earnings of that investment within the investment bond grow, you need to pay tax on those earnings, but that's capped at 30%, which is the corporate tax rate. After 10 years, the advantage of doing that is you can withdraw the investment, and usually it's tax-free. And that includes any capital gains as well, because remember, you have paid taxes throughout the entire time that investment has been within the investment bond. And that's why investment bonds are technically considered tax-effective, but not tax-free. The ATO still get their share. Now, you can't contribute as much as you want. And there is something called a 125% rule in the 10 years that you hold the investment. So what's that 125% rule? Well, basically, you can't contribute more than 125% of the previous year's contribution. Now, it's best that I use an example to highlight this principles. So Amy is a 33-year-old and is looking to start an investment portfolio for her children, especially their education fees that she prefers to put them in private schools later on. So she's looking at a 10-year investment time horizon. So she chooses an investment bond and decides to contribute $10,000 in the first year. And of course, the investment bonds go for about 10 years. She's already decided that. Therefore, in year one, she contributes $10,000. In year two, she can contribute up to 125% of the previous year. So in year two, she can now contribute up to $12,500. In year three, she can now contribute And in year four, she can contribute $19,530. So it's 125% maximum of the previous year, not year one. So when she gets to about year 10, it works out to be about $90,000 that she can contribute. Now, if she contributes more than 125% of the previous year, that's called a breach, then the 10-year cycle starts again. And I guess the disadvantage for Amy of the 10-year cycle is that after 10 years, remember, she's technically allowed to withdraw the money in the investment bond tax-free. Now, that tax-free withdrawal date is now postponed further because she's breached that 10-year period. So the 10-year cycle starts again. So the other thing about the breach is if she breaches Um, you know, this 125% rule or there's another rule where let's say she doesn't contribute at all one year, then if she misses that contribution for that one year, then again, that 10-year cycle starts again. So they're the two breaches that potentially Amy can do. So it's relatively strict. Um, And of course, what you can invest in a year depends on what you've invested the previous year as well. So you've got to take that into account. So if you came into a large sum of money, in year five, then you can't just chuck it all into that investment bond because you can only invest 125% of what you invested in year four. So it's really designed for long-term investment with some you know, relatively strict rules. And it's also designed for people that have to contribute regularly or want to contribute regularly. So it's not ideal for people who have changing life circumstances or variable incomes or don't have a long-term horizon. Now, if she breaches that 10-year cycle and supposing she wants to withdraw the funds prior to the 10 years um, because, you know, she's running into some financial trouble and she has to sell some investments, then Amy has to pay additional tax. And I think she has to pay the additional tax on her marginal tax rates. Um, so, but I think she also gets a rebate on that 30% tax that she's already paid for those years within the investment uh, bond. So, you know, she doesn't have to pay 45% tax on the entire earnings. She probably only has to pay the difference, which is around 15%. So there's some sort of fine tuning of the details there. And you might have to check with your accountant in terms of the finer details, but that's basically the gist of it. Now there is one particular scenario where you may want to breach the contract, which might actually be a good thing for you. So supposing you have a investment bond and you're probably in, you know, year seven or year eight, et cetera, and your income drops. So, you know, you could be closer to retirement or, you know, you lost a job or whatever it is, and your income drops such that you are now in a tax rate which is less than 30%. Then You know, we know that investment bonds are tax effective if your tax rate is above 30%, but if it's below 30%, then it doesn't make any sense to have an investment bond because you'll be paying more tax within the investment bond structure. So there are some circumstances and you need to really discuss that with your financial advisor or accountant to see whether it actually makes sense to breach that 10-year cycle and withdraw the money. And get a rebate on the tax different. And I think it's pro rata. So you don't get the rebate on the entire term of the investment bond, just those years that you have lower income. So you need to check that with your accountant as well. So there are some situations where breaching that 10-year rule might actually make sense. Just could be a bit careful about it. So that's investment bonds. Now, what about superannuation spousal contributions? Now, in part one of this tax efficiency series, I discussed about the value of super the concessional contributions cap, which is $27,500 currently, and how it's basically the best way to save for retirement if you didn't need the money now. Now, the concept for superannuation spousal contributions is called spouse contributions tax offset. And some people, um, you know, it's designed for people that take time off to have children. And um, in that circumstance, one person in the family may not be working or for whatever reason is not working, doesn't have to be having kids, et cetera, which means their super is not having any contributions for that time that they're not working or having a lower income. That means the earning spouse can then contribute towards the super of the non-earning spouse or the low-income spouse and be granted some tax offsets. Now, there are some rules to this. Um, You can only make after-tax contributions to your non-earning or low-income spouse. You must be in a relationship. Now, I'm not sure how they're gonna prove that. Uh, it doesn't have to be a relationship in marriage. I'm pretty sure it can be a relationship, like a de facto relationship, etc. But um, the ATO website actually says you must be in a relationship. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, can be difficult to prove. But anyway, um, Australian residents, you have to be Australian residents, both of them. Both spouses have to be Australian residents. The receiving spouse must be under the retirement age, which is age 67, and the receiving spouse must be a low income earner. So they have got to earn less than $37,000 per year of annual income to qualify for the full tax offset, or they've got to earn less than $40,000 for partial offset. So if they're earning like $39,000 or something like that, they only get a partial offset. So what is that? Offset. So what's the tax advantage here? Well, you can contribute to your lower earning spouse um, to their super up to $3,000 per year and get an 18% tax offset on your income or on that that, um, contribution. So basically, to highlight that point, I just want to use an example. So again, coming back to Amy, let's say Amy is working as a doctor and she's currently undergoing specialist training, which is grueling. Now, as a result, her partner, Matt, is taking some time off to help look after the kids. So now Matt has reduced his work hours, and this affects his income. So his income used to be $80,000 a year, but now it's only $35,000. Amy's income is $180,000, right? So Amy can contribute up to $3,000 into Matt's super and then claim a tax deduction of $540. That is 18% offset during her tax time. Now, Amy can contribute more than $3,000 if she really wants to, but the tax offset claim can only be up to $3,000. So, it's a maximum of $540 that she can claim tax offset. So, even if she contributes, you know, $10,000 to Matt Super, she's only going to, go to get 18% of $3,000, not 18% of, you know, ten dollars or $20,000 that she may wish to contribute. Now that's just a basic overview and there are some nuances and nitty- gritties on this topic in the ACL's website. If you're interested, um, you know maybe I'll do an episode specifically on this, but I think it's basically again free money. So if you've got a spouse that doesn't work or um, has a low income and that fulfills this criteria, I think it's a really good way to save some money essentially and make your uh, you know financial life a little bit more tax effective and tax efficient. So before we go on to the granddaddy of things, which is the investment property deductions, let's take a quick ad break.
1: If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help.
2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. And now to the granddaddy of deductions when it comes to tax efficiency, and that's investment property deductions. Now, I've done a very detailed episode on this, which is um, episode 107 in my previous life as Devraka personal finance. So go back and listen to it if you're really interested and want to go into it in a deep dive. But this is a really huge, huge topic. So I'll just summarise how investment properties can be, you know, relatively tax effective. But remember the golden rule: never invest in things just for the tax deductions. This is a common mistake a lot of investors do, a lot of people do when it comes to property. Now, healthcare workers are not immune to this. They often earn a very you know, good wage and pay a larger amount of tax compared to other professions and often get into the trap of, oh my God, my tax bill is huge. I'm paying 40% tax so let's just buy some property to reduce my tax burden. That's a red flag. You're doing something just to reduce tax. You need to invest in investments that are good before considering tax implications. It's the good investments which rise in value. So when you buy property, make sure you buy something that you think is good, that's going to rise in value and produce a good income for you in terms of rental income, because that's what's going to do well in the long term. Don't just buy things just for the tax benefit because spending a dollar to save 45 cents or whatever it is that your tax bracket is, is never a good financial plan. It's like going to a casino and spending money. You're never going to be winning all the time in the long run. The casino always has a mathematical edge. So how does owning an investment property become tax effective? What sort of things can you actually deduct from an investment property well, ideally you want to buy something that's going to rise in value and produce an income, and hopefully that income rises in income every single year as well. So your rental income hopefully goes higher and higher as your, you know, leverage, as your mortgage becomes lower and lower, and of course the property that you've bought increases in value and that becomes higher and higher. So what sort of things can you deduct? Well, rental advertising costs. That's a big one. So marketing costs Advertising costs, brochures, signs, etc. all of that is deductible, and that's instant deduction. The loan interest um, is also deductible, just the interest component, not the principal component. I, I get a fair bit of questions about this. So this is really important to understand. So every year, your bank may send out the investment loan statements. And sometimes, I think nowadays, it's done via email or online, and it clearly mentions the interest costs on the loan you can't claim on the principal reductions. So you can, you know, I I basically, when I give it to my accountant, I highlight the interest costs um, that I can potentially deduct from my assessable income essentially. The third thing is council rates. Now, the important thing here is it's only claimable during periods of the home is genuinely being rented or on the market for rent. So if your home was only rented for 200 days in the year or has been on the market for rent for 200 days in the year, then you can only claim about 54% of the council rates because 54% equals 200 days in a full calendar year, which is 365 days. Now, council rates are extremely expensive in some parts of the country, particularly if you live in a holiday destination. So I think it's an important thing that you need to keep an eye on and be really maximizing your deductions during tax time. The fourth one is land tax. That's a fairly sizable amount. For the people that own property that have land, you need to pay land tax on that, and that depends on the value of the property. Now, this is entirely state dependent on what and when you can claim. So, be sure to check with your accountant or your local state laws. Or well, there's actually specific advisors called land tax advisors, and I did not know that was a specialty in itself. You can consult a land tax advisor in terms of this particular deduction if you wanted to, but most accountants should be fairly, you know, knowledgeable in this regard. The fifth one is strata fees. Um, if it's part of a strata title, so townhouses, units or apartments, um, in some States it's also called body corporate fees. And, um, The important thing here is that if the fees include garden and maintenance fees, then you can't claim garden and maintenance fees separately to that. And some of these strata title fees actually say it's a complete fee for complete maintenance. So you can only claim one or the other. And I think you can claim the one that gives you the best benefit. And dare I say, body corporate fees are quite excessive in some places, and that would probably be your best bet. I would be very surprised if you're spending a significant amount of money maintaining your garden and doing your maintenance of common property, which is in excess of your body corporate fees. I'd be surprised if that was the case. If that was the case, I think there's something else going on. So potentially a red flag. The sixth one is building depreciation. Now, this is only claimable if the property has been built, I think, greater than 1985, after 1985, I think. And usually you can claim 2.5% per year for up to 40 years. Now, for example, if the building was built in the year 2000 and cost you $300,000 on the build, you can claim depreciation cost of $7,500 per year up to year 2040. It's a very simple breakdown of that, right? So there are some sort of detailed aspects to this, which you might need to clarify. Um, Now, you can also claim depreciation on any renovations, which were done as well. But of course, there are specific rules that apply. So I'm not sure why that 1985 rule exists. Um, You might need to look into that, um, which I found was a bit surprised by that. Number seven is any appliances, you can claim the depreciation. So in Victoria, some properties, you need to include white goods So if you buy them, you can claim depreciation. Now, there's something called a 2017 rule in Victoria, I think. Um, Maybe it's national. Um, And I think if you bought a white good or appliance for the house prior to 1st of July 2017, you can claim on secondhand and brand new appliances. Anything after, after this date, you can only claim brand new appliances. So again, specific rules apply. So check with the ATO or your accountant. So that I call that the 2017 rule. Number eight, repairs and maintenance. Again, only wear and tear repairs can be immediate deductions. Um, so if you actually replace appliances or actual fittings, you can only claim depreciation and not an instant deduction. So broken blinds and you install new blinds, you can only claim a depreciation for the life of that property or for the life of that blinds. You can't just claim the entire blinds as an instant deduction. Rules apply. Pest control. You know, some states, I think, stipulate pest control or particularly if you're renting them out. I know the laws in Victoria are quite strict now for rental properties and some of them say you need to do yearly checks on compliance costs uh, for pests, for for gas, electricity, smoke alarms. Um, so that came into law in Victoria, uh, I think this year or last year. And I think it's important um, to be able to know what to claim. So for example, in Victoria, new rules mean that electricity, gas and smoke alarm safety checks have to be done, I think twice a year. So there's actually companies in Victoria that offer a subscription service where you subscribe and they go and do it for you twice a year. I think they charge several hundred dollars and um, But, you know, whenever the government introduces these laws and legislation and ultimately for the safety of the tenants, um, there's always going to be businesses that are going to capitalise on that. So, you know, I've just got investment properties where I just subscribe to a particular company that offers the service um, that was introduced to me by my real estate agent. I just pay them a fee and I know that I get a bit of peace of mind and that fee I can claim back in my tax deductions for that particular investment property. So it's important to keep receipts for that. Garden and maintenance. Now, this depends on whether it's maintenance of new equipment or not. So, for example, if you have installation of garden feature lights, that can't be instantly claimed. That must be a deduction. But things like lawn mowing, trimming, cleaning up expenses, they can be instantly deducted. Uh, And, of course, if garden and maintenance is included in your body corporate fees, then you can't claim it separately. I've already talked about that before. Insurance. That's a no-brainer. Building insurance, landlord insurance, contents insurance, it's a definite and it's sizable. So I saw a post online recently where someone said that they had to pay $1,200 for building and contents insurance for their home, which I thought was pretty reasonable. Um, but they were quite surprised because it's the first time they've had to actually buy it for their own home. So um, it definitely adds up. And if you have you know multiple investment properties, it definitely adds up. So it's important to keep receipts and claim them. Now, accounting fees, bookkeeping costs, of course, um, you know, if you're doing income tax and, you know, uh, you've got to keep receipts and claim them and, of course, your accountant should know that. Um, Now, this is a claim based on doing your own income tax and it's not a claim against any write-off against any property income. So it's an important difference that you need to understand. Agent's letting fees, um, you know, most agents charge a fee every time they let a property. That's claimable. And they have a monthly charge of letting fees, which is around three to 6%, depending on where you are in the country. So that's definitely claimable. Um, and usually agents should be giving you a yearly statement for this. And you've got to keep out eye out for these statements. I mean, my real estate agents basically email me a statement, which has all the income, all the expenses, all the repairs, all the maintenance, any new appliances, any checks, all that sort of stuff. That's all included in that statement. So I just basically have to submit that statement to my accountant. I do have individual receipts for all of them as well. In case I go through an audit or something like that, I I do submit it to my accountant, but basically I just submit the entire statement and it just makes it easier. And it just comes in an email right around tax time. Travel expenses. Now that's an interesting one. Um, So I was actually quite surprised when I looked into this you can claim travel expenses to and from investment properties, but usually it's only can be claimed if the property investing is part of your business. So if you're a property investor, then generally speaking, that's legitimate because that's your job. Um, but I'm pretty sure that you can't claim travel expenses just for going and doing an inspection of the property as a landlord if you're a mum and dad investor, individual investor. So to use an example, suppose you own five properties and you're a doctor, let's say, your primary profession is a doctor. So you can't claim travel expenses incurred as a result of inspecting your properties, which conveniently you've bought in all the holiday locations. So a lot of people get caught To trying to do this. Um, And I guess if your accountant says you can, then you need to really ask them, you know, the nitty gritties of it and get some assurances because I've looked through the ATO's website and they specifically use this example saying you can't claim travel expenses just for inspecting your investment property. So, uh, which a lot of people think they can. And to be honest, I used to think I could. So, I thought if I had a property in interstate or somewhere in a rural location, me driving there to have a look at the property to inspect it, which, you know, you need to do twice yearly inspections if your agent invites you to, I thought that would be claimable. But apparently if it's not related to my profession, which it isn't because I'm a doctor, you can't claim it. Legal expenses. Now, if you incur legal expenses, I know a lot of landlords have in the last sort of, you know, 6 to 8 months, uh, particularly in Victoria, uh, when the eviction moratorium I think ended, I think it was June, I can't remember, to try and evict a tenant, any legal expenses associated with that you can claim. And in terms of the cost of legal fees at the time of purchasing the property, it's important to know that's not claimable. That is a capital cost like conveyancing fees, stamp duty, etc. So A lot of people think that can be instantly claimed when they do their taxes. You can't. You got to keep receipts for that. And when you sell the property, that's when you can claim it as a deduction. So it's a capital cost, not a yearly assessable income deduction. And of course, capital gains discount. Now, I've talked about this before. Um, Basically, if you own an asset, and that includes property, um, for more than 12 months, and you sold it, and you have a capital gain on that, then the tax payable is discounted by 50%. So, well, sorry, let me just rephrase that. It's not the tax payable. The 50% discount is on the amount of money that you've made. So, if you calculate your capital gain and take 50% off that, your gain is the discounted gain, okay? It's not a 50% tax deduction or tax discount. So, you don't get a 50% deduction on your overall tax bill. So if your capital gain is $100,000, then the tax you pay on that is only calculated on $50,000. In other words, you get a capital gain discount of 50%. So hopefully I didn't confuse listeners, and that's really important to understand because a lot of people say, oh, if I have to pay $50,000 in tax, does that mean I only get paid tax? $25,000, and that's not actually true. So those are the main three things for this episode, and that is about it for this series of tax efficiency. Look, there's heaps of different ways that you can save on tax and 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 try and be a bit more tax efficient and tax tax effective. Um, you know like the other major one is debt recycling, which I haven't really gone through, but I'm trying to be as simple and effective as possible in terms of some things that you can do very, very quickly. Debt recycling is' a little bit more complicated i um, happy to do an episode on that. I have done it in the past. But, you know, overall, I think it's important to look at ways to minimise tax. Um, but remember, the ultimate goal here is to make more money. And this means don't do things just for tax benefits. But if tax benefits are tied with making more money and making good investments, that's a great thing. So fundamentally, you need to pick investments that rise in value, and pay you an income. And fundamentally, if you're doing things just to save on tax, that's a red flag. I cannot stress this enough. And, you know, healthcare workers are a huge risk for this. It's probably the most common question that I get from doctors and dentists um, and, you know, most healthcare workers who probably make a good wicket, you know, anywhere between $100,000 and $500,000 a year. And they immediately sort of think, I'm making so much money, I need to save on tax. So please help me save on tax. And I say, well, that's that's not the good way to look at it. You need to save on tax, but primarily you need to make good investments. And that's about it for this episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. I'll leave a five-star review on all platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review because when you actually leave a positive review, people actually read that. It spreads the message. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. This is Dev Raga from My Millennial Money Medical and until next time, please make sure you stay safe.